Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray back in the driver's seat for the first time in 2021 and excited to welcome both a co-host and guest into the studio to kick off our recording year. Yes, I know it's episode two of 2021, but our chat with Meg McLaren from last week was recorded before Christmas, so technically the new year starts for us today. And what a start it is. First up, a welcome to my co-host, as always, Adrian Logue. Logue, I'm not sure if anyone's ever compared you to a pair of old slippers before, mm-hmm. but I'm finding well, that having you back here in the studio is quite comforting, like putting on an old pair of slippers. Okay. All right. I... <laughs> Where oh, to go with that. 61 <laughs> episodes in and he's speechless at about time. You can to, wear me like an old pair of slippers anytime you like you an, want. An old pair of slippers. <laughs> when I wrote that this morning, I thought to myself, I wonder if this is going too far. I think it was. But anyway, uh, good to have you. Well, mate, looking forward to having a chat today. It has been far too long. Indeed. We, Indeed seen you in the new year. I'm trying to remember. No, this is happy new year for you and me. Happy new year for us. Looking forward to catching up today. As I am with our in-studio guest, and it's probably underselling him a bit to call him a guest, let's be honest. Regular listeners will remember he's also filled the role of co-host, and we are planning to hear a lot more from him in the year ahead. I speak, of course, of the principal, principal, slippers, principal of Cruise Golf. Harley Cruise. Hello, mate. Good to have you in. Hey, Rod. How are you? Yes, not going too badly at all. Does the golf course design business shut down over Christmas New Year? I would assume it does, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I think everyone's away, and um, so it really slows down. So uh, bits going on, though. Um, overseas, there's still little bits and pieces happening, but otherwise it's a bit of a slow mode for a couple of weeks, which is good. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you're not a guest anymore, so your mic technique's important. I want you to stay up nice and close on that mic so that we can all hear your first admonishment. There we go. Uh, so we didn't really prepare much in the way of a list of topics for the day, but we've just been chatting for about 40 minutes before we pressed the record button, and I really wish you'd been here, people. There was some fantastic stuff in there. I'm intrigued by this notion of yours, Like It was announced earlier this week that Clayton, DeVries and Pont, Mike Clayton, Mike DeVries and Frank Pont have got the job to do the Seven Mile Beach project down in Tasmania. Very exciting for all of those of us who are golf course architecture nerds. Looks to be an incredible site in cahoots with Matt Goggin. But it raises, not that particular project, but broadly raises an interesting question. Tell us what your thoughts on this notion of new golf versus existing golf are. Well, I think there's a, there's a question that golf needs to ask itself is whether or not, or what, what are the ethics of claiming a new piece of virgin land for golf when there's so much existing land already used for golf where there's mediocre golf courses that could be so much better um where you know good land with not good golf courses our mindset as human beings i think is just to write off that that whole existing supply that we've got there and just say okay the only way to get a good golf course is to build a new one and uh, I just find that intriguing. And it's a, it's a behaviour that repeats itself again and again. And why I think it's human nature to some extent. Well, there's, there's a bunch of stuff probably wrapped up in there. One of them being excitement. It was exciting to read on Monday morning that there's going to be a new golf course and who's doing it. So you can see how it sort of sells there. Harley, Logue trying to put you out of business. Why is he doing <laughs> why, why does he not want you to leave your market? Any renovation golf. work to be done. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think, I guess, Tasmanian... Tasmania is growing as a golfing destination. It's growing as a golfing environment. And you could say, you could argue there's been a, a shortfall in the number of golf courses, perhaps, um, to service the market. It's a big destination of golf tourism. So, you know, you've got the great golf courses in King Island. You've got the you know, courses up at Bridport. Um, why not have some compelling, really good golf down around Hobart? And so, you know, some of the older courses were built on a fairly modest budget, modest sites. Um, 
And I guess this one at, at Seven Mile Beach, I mean, that's been on Goggins' radar for 20 or 30 years, yeah. right? It's this mm. absolutely magnificent piece of land to put a golf course on. And so I guess any golf course architect or, or golfer like Goggin is looking at it and going, we've got to do something here and create something really special. So I think the the drive, the vision, the dream to do something really special uh, is what's you know really pushing that 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 development and and i say well why not uh and if it means that the other golf courses are also um yeah maybe inspired or see what gets done or there's a level of knowledge and awareness that's created through the creation of the golf course at seven mile beach uh it may see the other golf courses hey hey we're in a pretty good spot here too we could actually be as good as this and we could tinker around with our course and lift it up so if there's a demand you know if there's not a demand and we're just displacing golfers from one course to another because there's no demand then you could question the ethics but if it's if it is something where there is a is, is a market out there is a demand uh and tasmania you know quite rightly could have the best golf in australia uh and so that's why not pursue that yeah I agree with all that. There's a lot to unpick in all of that. But aren't these the hard questions for golf and the difficult questions golfers need to ask themselves? Nobody's speaking against the seven-mile beach. Oh, I don't mm, think I'm so. I'm, I'm not verbaling you there. No, yeah. <laughs> no, nobody's <laughs> suggesting that. But the announcement of a new golf course project really does raise difficult questions, does it not? Because golf, we like to spout here constantly about, you know, politicians who use divisive language like golf courses being reserved for the few as though golfers aren't part of the community and we say the opposite golf is part of the community so as part of the community we need to justify to ourselves as well the value of creating new golf when as Logue points out there is a lot of fairly ordinary golf that we could fix first if you could put the resources that go into creating a new course into an existing course you you know you've got I, I just I can't square that in my head. Like you know, golf. There are there are enough golf courses already. There's just not enough good golf. So uh, I'm just working out how we how we get around that, or how we how that comes to be. And and it's partly goes into club culture and stuff, which we oh, can there's explore. There's a, a whole hairball well there. You start unpicking. About most most clubs can't elevate above what they were when they were created. And so if there wasn't all of this effort and resources and design work put in at their creation then they're sort of doomed to be at that level for the rest of their existence or it's steady decline in fact for the rest of their existence with little bitsy work propping it up in places but never actually truly taking it to the next level or truly unlocking the potential of a piece of land um so it's partly you know bad design in past decades, that's le- or lack of design, in fact, that that has led to this. Um, but you know, there there are golf courses there that, if you just took it a, a fresh approach to them, they'd be they could be amazing places. So. Winter Park springs to mind, as it so often does in all of these discussions uh, yeah. about what what is possible well, in Australia as well. You've got Lonsdale, Bonnie Doon, I think, is an example of this. The Lakes, to some extent, in its latest incarnation, I think, is is great. Royal Queensland, in its latest incarnation. Uh, Peninsula Kingswood in its latest incarnation. These are places that have managed to break free of what they were and have become something at at a whole other level. Should be the norm, shouldn't it, actually, I suppose? Yeah. That should be the normal progression of a golf course, shouldn't it? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, uh, to use a sort of a real estate metaphor, how many houses do you see where it's, you know, knock down and rebuild something new? You know, to knock down a golf course and rebuild something new when you've got your sort of bridled with 
an existing operation, existing service to members and what and 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 guests is is the difficulty of just shutting the whole thing down and saying, well, come back in twelve months' time, everybody, we're going to have a brand new golf course. Um, so, I don't know how Lonsdale, for example, manage that, but you know that's there. The key things is to sort of say, okay, we're going to, in order to do this, we're going to have to shut down the whole shop um, for you know at least six twelve months. Um, so that gets a bit tricky, and that's where there's probably a lot of resistance um, within clubs to say, "Well, no, no, we've, I'm a member and I'm paying this money, and you know, I want, I want the thing. I need to play my golf." So, and I guess the clubs handle this by getting golf elsewhere. But um, certainly, there's sort of a, some bridles around what can and can't happen in in that space, as opposed to perhaps find a piece of land and go and build something fresh and new, and it's unbridled. Um, in terms of those sort of systems, I guess. You're like an accountant bringing all this practical stuff into a conceptual <laughs> discussion where it's all very interesting and now you're going to bring it down with. Do we place too much importance on good golf course architecture, those who are, of us who are interested in it, Harley? I've long said that I think that it's an important part of, hate the term, growing the game. But getting people infused with the spirit of golf, I think, relies on interesting golf courses. But do I overplay that? Because not everybody who plays the game wants to be that interested in it or, in fact, is that invested in it. Yeah, true. I mean, I, yeah, we were just talking before before we got on. You know, all it takes is maybe some of the regional golf courses. Where there's one or two fantastic golf holes, and it's enough to warrant making the journey to get there and, and play it. Um, and so, um, I think. But but there we are. We're talking about one or two really good golf holes in that golf course is enough to get you there. So I think, I think yeah. Look, I've good golf architecture is important. There's a there's a but there's a reality there of how far do you go with it at, um, to to taking it. To, to a sort of an extreme limit um, for to 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 get people to get there just because of the architecture. I think there's a whole lot of things that goes into making a place desirable. We might over overweight the architecture at times, but um, if we bear things down to just the simple, pure form of playing nine or eighteen holes in a beautiful setting, um, sometimes that's where if we are in a stunning setting. Maybe the architecture can fall second place to the the glamour setting we are which you know might be the cliff tops of, of sydney golf um down near la perouse um so yeah look it's i guess yeah in my game architecture is important uh but i think we we got sort of self make ourselves too self-important around this you know there's no point in having great architecture if no one can afford to maintain it and look after it and present it and bring it uh year in year out to uh and if, if the costs go out through the roof i'm sounding like an accountant again but reality is <laughs> really reality is is you know uh there's costs involved in having the doors open the lights on and mm-hmm. these things open for business so um pairing back regional golf to just simply good golf uh, and the good basics without having to go a bit you know outlandish with fancy architecture is is really where things need to be at the good basics is maybe what i think we've talked about this before haven't we the role yeah. of that. people who don't necessarily know or appreciate they're playing good and interesting golf architecture will be more inclined to enjoy golf if they are playing good and interesting architecture rather or just than. any architecture sometimes any anything designed i think can actually spur a little bit of interest in somebody who just sees golf as like if you nothing against Carrillo, you know, let's let's say you're playing Carrillo, <laughs> no, as an there's, example. There's no way around it. There's no diplomatic <laughs> just, way of saying it, is there? You're not a there, huge there's fan nothing. Of uh, there's no nothing redeemable from a golf course architecture <laughs> point of view about Carrillo. It's just you know, your basic suburban course, flat, uninteresting greens and tree line ridiculously over tree. It's all like that on the other short and everything. Ridge That's yeah. why we don't go there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Uh, you take a place like North Taramara, 
where nine holes of it are like that, mm-hmm. just completely devoid of any architectural merit. It's just suburban golf laid out by some council person at a desk, just like, how do I fill this rectangle of land? Versus the second nine, which have been designed. I don't think the architecture on that second nine is particularly good, but anybody experiencing those two halves of that course would think to themselves, oh, okay, that place, the first one is just some rubbish that people have you know, put up with for years. The other half is is something that somebody chose to put a bunker there and they chose to put that slope in the green and they chose to, to have it sit at this angle. I might not agree with those choices, <laughs> but there was the hand of an architect in this place and they're asking me questions and I, I've got to I've got to come up with an answer to the questions that this architect is asking me. And I, I think that contrast that you experience at North Taramara can can spur an interest in golf. So I think you're right that good architecture is actually good for the game, or, or any architecture is good for the right. game, yeah. because of that equation that happens when you see something that was obviously not just laid out by somebody at a like some council worker at a desk. It was laid out by somebody with intent. I think that spurs an interest in the game can poor or uninteresting architecture be its own feature occasionally you mentioned the Carilla there and your port has been doing this sort of trip around Maybe. Sydney municipal goal there's been some tee shots there through yeah, yeah. shoots of trees that are so bad they're almost interesting there's there's almost every single golf course in Sydney has some ridiculously amazing <laughs> shot or a ridiculously amazing hole Barmore Park has this par four which I think is the hardest hole in the world. Um, it's really narrow drive, but it's actually a drivable par four. But the green is incredibly shallow and there's a canal at the back with a sheer drop off <laughs> to get into the canal. And on the front of the green, there's this massive bunker to this very shallow green. So if you're in that front bunker, you've got to hit, a, like, guarantee, most people just blade it straight across the green into the canal again. So there's just no way out. You've got a 260 like, metre version got to creep up and sort of Augusta. cut it through a little gap. Yeah, it's, it's harder than anything at Augusta, believe me. It's <laughs> Bizarre. What's the responsibility of architects in this way, Harley, with the growth, growth of the game and, and making the game interesting, ongoing for those who are going to experience it in the future? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's coming in through, you know, I think the Taramara is a great example of. of if we look at sort of um, regional and, and sort of um, public public council golf, it was probably a lot of and nearly, and, and nearly every town in Australia has got a golf course of some mm-hmm. sorts. But very you know, lucky as, in that way. as Zojin said, it was you know possibly the you know the civil engineer for the town who was looking after roads and infrastructure was also said, well, we're going to find we're going to put a golf course out here, and he sort of looked up a couple of books maybe and and sort of and uh, drawn a few holes, and they've just plonked basically you know, and got themselves nine holes or 18 holes of golf without a lot of knowledge of the game and and you know the architecture of, of of golf and bunkering and hazards and sometimes bunkers would just get thrown out as sort of oh we need to have we've got to have a bunker on every hole or we've got to have bunkers on every hole not not a lot of thought at you know there's no arc, golf course architecture sort of put into it and i and i guess if we even look at the times when these golf courses laid out, there weren't many people in Australia practicing golf course architecture as mm-hmm. a profession. Really, um, it, you know, there's a, there was um, builders out there, but you know, we've come a long way. So I think, I think, um, yeah, the, the beauty is with in in our game is to 
as, as architects is to be able to, you know, the opportunity to to come into some of these regional golf courses and lift lift the lift the game a bit. And I think the perception is is that you know maybe architects are are expensive or we're going to cost a lot of money to do it. But the reality is um, we aren't. And to come in there and and actually have an architect in the process where a golf club is committed to doing something to its course. Um, and often it's, you know, they've got a windfall of money or they've, they've got some grants to do an irrigation system or, a, or some paths or things like this, uh, which does happen, um, is that, you know, if there isn't an architect involved, the question is, well, what result are they going to get? And is it just more of that same, just you know, more of the same that's already there as opposed to, well, while we're doing this and we're spending all this money, have we ever thought of moving this fairway this way or doing putting a tee over here or even just some interesting opportunities within these places to actually make the things more interesting, more fun. Um, and as Adrian said, have the situation where it asks, asks asking some questions of the whole side, asking questions of play. So there's not a lot of thought given to these courses originally and, and maybe there's a chance to. So let's hit the pause button for a minute and have a bit of a thought about... Um, what what these holes are and what this course is and and so hopefully that's where myself and fellow architects can can get involved and uh and help some of these clubs it's interesting isn't it every golfer thinks they're an architect almost every golfer don't they like and this is how this happens people in the club know what they like about golf and people would be otherwise horrified at the notion of somebody unqualified taking something on Mm -hmm. absolutely happy to make decisions and directions about what to do with the golf course with no actual knowledge of having studied anything at all. It's quite Yeah, remarkable. it's remar- like not relating it, the complete lack of self-awareness of not being able to relate it to your own job yeah. where, you know, you it might look easy to an outsider your own job, but you know. Your job, for example. Research that went into it. <laughs> Never actually seen you work. How hard could it be? <laughs> and... Uh, it's, but it's, yeah, it never ceases to amaze me that people don't apply that thinking to something like golf course architecture because it's very much like art where you can just point at a Rothko or something and say, oh, I could do that. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's easy because, you know, I, I reckon I could put a bunker there. Like that, it's, yeah, there's not a lot of, lot of uh, self-awareness that goes into those sort of statements. I'm interested in something Harley was saying there about the price of architects and because to me like good architecture need not necessarily be very expensive right that's right correct um look at a place like frankston um where uh, there's superb architecture there just good simple strategy and interesting green complexes and that's probably the cheapest run golf course in australia absolutely it's it's run on what two two staff yeah something like that but um, yeah, I mean, uh, why do people think you cost a fortune? Where oh, I do think, they get I that? Th- well, that's, I think it's perception more than the reality, right? And so I think there's, you know, there's perception that golf architects only deal with sort of tier one clubs around Sydney and Melbourne and and Brisbane, Adelaide, etc. And then, and that that uh, you know us in regional New South Wales, regional Victoria, you know, we we can't afford an architect, and and yet there might be a significant irrigation system upgrade that could you know, could ultimately cost them over a million dollars to to fix the repair the irrigation you know the, the irrigation system that's 40 years old and leaking and pipes are bursting and so they come in and they'll spend the million 1.2 million ultimately of doing 18 holes of golf of new irrigation um, they've got no choice it's like rewiring your house when you when your 50 year old 
you know, wiring fails. You, you don't know. just do the lounge room, do you? you that know, doesn't you've got work. to do the whole thing, otherwise the thing's going to you know, cat, you know, spark and catch light and burn down. So the golf course world, you know, you've, you know, I know several golf courses right now where the you know the superintendents are dealing with failing pipes and water and, and bursting and causing damage or can't control the irrigate the, the irrigation system properly. So they're at risk of greens dying and things like that. So ultimately, you know. You've got to get to the situation of getting a new irrigation system in. They're about to spend $1.2 million. If you just accept where everything is today and said, oh, we're just going to re-irrigate what's there, well, for a few thousand dollars, you get an architect come in and say, well, have you actually thought about your fairway moving out this way or the fairway moving out there? As I said before, you know, maybe it's a couple of T's here, T's there, or even think about, you know, is that green in the best possible location it can be? So you really need to look at the whole site and say, okay, we're going to spend this in irrigation, but maybe before we do that, we should be thinking about our golf course and where everything sits today and how it, how it all works. Um, uh, and that's where a lot of clubs don't. They blindly just go and put a brand new irrigation system in without even, even giving it that thought. Isn't the bigger problem for regional clubs more that it's very difficult to get the Ferrari across the cattle grids? I was going Isn't to that say. The, yeah. the issue for... Yeah. And do you think the cost perception is anything to do with the fact you like, <laughs> like now you're wearing a three-piece suit and a pop hat? And oh, st- <laughs> should have at least taken the hat off before it walked yeah, in. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, but like everything, though, is, <laughs> the reality of all of that stuff is there is a... In every facet of life, there is an enormous difference between price and value, isn't there? Yeah, correct. So... You can buy a million-dollar house, which could be fantastic value. That's a lot of money, and people understand that concept, but they seem to not grasp that concept with things like golf course architecture. How do we educate? Can it, is it possible to educate or even desirable to educate more golfers about why this stuff's important? I can imagine if I suggested at my club we should get Harley to come and have a look and pay him $5,000 for his time. Can we get it for five grand? No, for, to have a look at the course and do up you know, a very basic plan of what might be done. People would be horrified at the nose. They'd be more than convinced they're capable of doing it themselves. I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think golf clubs get the architect they deserve a lot of the time because they get what they aspire to. And you, uh, if, if the vision of a board and the, and the members is, is that we are what we are and this is, this is all we're able to uh, aspire to, then they unwittingly, I think, choose an architect that delivers that for them. It's more of the same. Yeah. So I, that's the mindset that I think I'd like to have people break out of. It's like, see the potential of your land and, and think to yourself, okay, maybe we don't need to be this spectacular thing that has like a parkland course with 80 bunkers or something. I'm not talking about any specific golf course here. <laughs> 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 maybe we don't need to you know, have 80 bunkers and flashing sand everywhere and ridiculous greens and all that sort of thing maybe there's some there's something on the spectrum there where there's just good solid strategic golf and it's maintainable and it's not going to cost us a fortune into the future might even actually save like exactly it's not going to be like Mm. uh you know you might have at a resort course at you know some trump course which costs like 45 million loss loses 45 million dollars a year or something it's it's not going to be like that it's it's going to be something that's sustainable, maybe even more sustainable than what we've currently got, and certainly better golf. Um, that that's the sort of brief I think I'd be trying to get clubs to think about, and when they take it to an architect, and I think that'll feed into the type of architect that they choose as well. So the old chestnuts here, aren't they? Are sort of condition and the the misunderstanding of difficulty 
and interesting. So the prime example at my own club at Mangrove, actually I just realised I haven't paid my fees there, so I'm actually a member, I've been there for ages, but the second hole there is an extremely difficult par four, down a hill, cross water, to a green. And then the fourth hole is a very interesting, they're both par four and a half really, it's quite an interesting, not dissimilar, but it's a par five. If you ask people, which I've done, what's the best hole on the golf course, they will without fail say the second. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them what is their favourite golf hole on the course, 70% of them will say the fourth. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them what would be the best way to make this course lift it, to elevate it in people's minds, they'd tell you that you'd build nine versions of the second hole yep. and none of the fourth hole. Yep. How do we get that disconnect? You must see this often, this perception that if it's hard, hard it must be good. good. And the other perception, the opposite one, well, I used to, we had the Lexus Cup there at Golf Link for a long time, and the final was played at Royal Melbourne, and I was the one writing the story. So you'd ring people to tell them they'd qualified for the final, and they were off to play Royal Melbourne, just standard golfers. And almost without exception, they'd be like, oh, God, I don't think I'm good enough to play at Royal Melbourne. Well, of course, the irony is there's nothing difficult about Royal Melbourne. Mm. My wife's, people just people couldn't understand side, that. My wife's been invited for a game at New South Wales, her, her first game of golf in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, of course I want to play there. It's, it's the, you were always talk, talking about it. It's the best one, isn't it? I want to play the best one. <laughs> be another 20 years before she plays again, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, hard, but that, that hard, hard and it, good. Interesting, that hard thing is is there was a golf course in, that got built in China, um, you know, back in the two, uh, 2000, around 2008, 9, 10, and, and it was – 7,900 yards or something like this, you know, because the, the, the developer wanted the longest golf course in China and the toughest golf course and longest, and therefore that equals good. And, um, you know, the thing opened for play and people were playing off the tees and they're just getting bashed around trying to play this thing. And, you know, maybe it took that golf course for people to realise, you know, it came out with its glory at the beginning and it's, you know, the bragging rights are the longest. And But people weren't enjoying it and, and were getting bashed around. They'd come off and they'd just think, well, this is just too hard. No, and, they're paying handsomely for the privilege yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so ultimately, you know, I don't think the golf course was that successful. So, you know, hard, of course, doesn't equal good, but... Um, but this is where, you know, and, and when I was involved with golf, another golf course in China, the brief from the client who in this one site was doing five golf courses at the same time, said we want your course to be the, the hardest of the lot. And, um, you know, as an architect, it's easy to make something really hard. You know, just, you know, you make it, you know, really penal roughs and tough. I reckon even could do it. Yeah. Even he could build a difficult yeah. – even I could design a difficult golf course. Yeah, hard and tough. But is it a good golf course? No, it's not. So my – but, you know, the client was saying hard and tough, but, you know, at the end of the day I wanted it to be good, to be good golf. And so – which means, you know, having width and strategic options and, and bunkers in the right place and not overly – not overly bunkered and, you know, a, you know, a modesty of green sizes and all sorts of all, all different angles and all sorts of things that make the game fun shapes and things that make it fun and interesting. And I think so – and, and it, no matter what piece of ground you're on, you know, whether it's it's a local nine-hole course or, a, or, a, or an 18-hole private golf club, we're all on a piece of land where we're asking, we're asking players to hit a shot and play, play shots and let the ball run and things like that. And we can, as architects, we can make, if the land itself isn't that interesting, we can make it interesting and make it enjoyable and, and fun to play. So, so that's where we could take a bit of mundane ground with today's technology and make it interesting, even if it's just around the greens alone. Just, you know, if it's just a putting surface and 20 metres around the putting surface make it interesting, could lift a golf course's, you know, um, um, enjoyment. Uh, greatly so it it doesn't need to be you know 
long and it doesn't need to be heavily bunkered. So, so uh, and and indeed, we're coming back to conditioning and things. I think, you know, stepping into some of these courses is the key. Is working with the committee. The other key person, all this is the is the superintendent because ultimately they're the ones that have to um, present this golf course seven days a week, three hundred sixty five days of the year, and and. Um, there's some practical implications of what we do as architects to, to, to have the thing maintained, but also if a superintendent's you know, maintaining a current golf course um, day in, day out, it's, it's amazing how you can come into a place with a fresh set of eyes as we can as architects and take a look and say, well, why are we mowing this over here? You know, you know every year there's, there's hours spent mowing this bit of ground out of habit rather than say, well, actually it's not material to the game let's just leave it alone and and all of a sudden we could come in and actually help clubs save cost um in the way they look at things and and focus the costs on the on the playing surfaces and maybe save costs elsewhere um save watering save fertilizing so um so that's where stepping in and just sort of taking a new as a new look you know the, the green keeping and the, everyone's down on the coal face looking at this thing every day come in and have a fresh look at things and and see and and look every golf course we walk into there's an opportunity for, for improvement and it, it could be the smallest of things that can make a big difference with which, which don't cost a lot of money um that's the other assumption isn't it? That, that architects only make big suggestions yeah. that if you get an architect they're going to make huge suggestions about turning this hole around and changing the routing and swapping the front and back nine and you've got to have more. That's the assumption, which is yeah, yeah, not yeah. always the reality. Yeah, it? yeah, so, correct. Indeed. But, but, sorry. Go. Well, that, that mowing thing's interesting. I, I was talking to you blokes before we started recording about this golf course in Denmark, which is 150 hectares. It's got 27 holes, but it's on 150 hectares, which to, to sort of set it up but that's it's just colossal like a, a normal 18 hole championship course is on about 40 hectares parley something yep. about that um and this place is 150 hectares and you look out and it's just staggering like just to look at that much ground and see all of this golf out there and when it was first built they took advantage of that with like 100 meter wide fairways um, if anyone's interested in it, it's a place called Sten Spelagor in Denmark. No doubt you'll send it to me to put in the show notes. <laughs> of course. Um, it's a Robert von Hage course as well. Oh, okay. So you know it's oh, right. So you would have been playing with light and shadow and out there in his cape. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic exactly. Although I think Rick Barrell probably had a lot more to do with <laughs> the design of it than, than von Hage at that point in his career. But it, at first it had literally 100 metre wide fairways, which is just staggering to it's, think about. It's mind-blowing. And... But then they just found they just couldn't afford to mow it. Like there was just <laughs> – they could not afford to keep that with the fairways. And so now you, you go there and it, the fairways are still ridiculously wide, but they're not 100 metres wide. Right. And you can – as you're walking along, you can see some bunkers like way out there. <laughs> <in> the <rough>. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be fairway. Yeah. Uh, but it's still extremely well bunkered. It's, it's, a, it's a very enjoyable golf course. But um, they worked that out very quickly that they weren't going to be able to afford to keep the 100-metre-wide fairways oh. out of a 150-hectare property. Bit of a rabbit warren, but the first hole at Lost Farm at Barnbugle Dunes, I don't know if it's 100 metres wide, but it wouldn't be much short of 100 metres mm, from mm, side to side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mate Coxie, shout out to Coxie, who won't be listening, but I might send him the link. <laughs> he missed it. <laughs> he missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly 100 metres wide, he missed it. He pulled it into the practice range, which was uh, out of bounds. It was just uh, staggering. Staggering and funny. Hello, good, good listeners. Rod Murray here. Hope you're enjoying our chat with Harley Cruz. Have you been to the golfsociety.com.au shop yet and made use of the 20% Talk and Golf discount? No? 
Why not? Make sure you do. All the biggest name brands and all the best prices. Thegolfsociety.com.au, Polo, Ralph Lauren, Travis Matthew, Peter Miller, Jay Lindeberg, G4 and Adidas Shoes, accessories. It's all there. 20% off for being a Talking Golf listener. Use the code TG in the promo code at checkout. That's T for Talking, G for Golf. See what we did there? TG, 20% off, thegolfsociety.com.au. Go there now. Back to Harley Cruz. I was thinking about the hard and good thing. Well, this might be whether it's something to do with that. The, the problem with that, the, the reason I think it causes confusion is because hard also doesn't equal bad. So it's not a simple binary proposition, is it? So there are some very difficult golf holes in the world, which are fantastic golf holes, and the difficulty is a part of that. So hard can be good, yep. but as a notion, hard being good is not a – it doesn't – it's not a total coverage of the subject. Does that make sense? What I'm saying. So that's mm-hmm. so people get a bit confused. The tenth hole at Royal Melbourne West, the short par for it's a very difficult golf hole. Mm-hmm. The second shot in there is brutally difficult. Punishment all over. They're extremely hard, but it's an extraordinarily thrilling, interesting, fascinating, one of the best golf holes in the world. Mm. Yeah. People want to be tested, don't they? I, there's an interesting thing about I've I think a lot about tough par fives or long par fives. Mm-hmm. I find the second shot on exceedingly long par fives just boring. We just brought this up. All oh, right, okay. well, you keep talking while I'm right. about to. Um, the, the second shot on a very long par five, I just find really boring. I just can't wait to get to the par three at the end of the hole, basically. Yeah. And the second shot sort of setting you up for wherever you're going to play this third the shot from. The A and A is a prime example. That, that one's two a shots example. to get to the T of the par three that you're actually yeah. playing. Yeah, <laughs> and you're just like marking time until you can get to that third shot and do something interesting. Because a lot of really long par fives have no interest at all on in that second shot. Something like the 17th at St Andrews Beach is an exception. That's that's three interesting shots, and it's three shots for us. Um, but there's the uh, not, not two a, interesting shots for someone who's good enough. <laughs> not yeah, probably the longest. Well, maybe the longest par five in Sydney would be that fourth at Moor Park. It'd be it'd be up there. That's a right. very long hole. Uh, but uh, that second shot there, there's just no interest. You've just got to you've got to hit it straight, and then you've got an extremely interesting third shot. The tee shot's fun. It's just a big slog, and then you've got just a nothing second shot and then a really interesting third shot. The second at where I play at Pimble's a very long par five that nobody can reach into really at the club. Um, and the second shot's just, you're just marking time and you might hit it straight. If you hit it straight, fine, you get to hit your third shot. If you hit it in the trees, you're hitting out of the trees. But there's just no interest. And But I think amateur golfers find it, find those holes interesting because they're required to hit three good shots in a row. And this this is the the test. Like that's why those holes tend to be lower indexes, like stroke indexes, because it's tough for an amateur golfer to hit three good shots in a row. There's three chances to stuff it up. <laughs> whereas, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas par threes tend to be the higher stroke indexes one because to yeah, you've only got one chance to stuff it up. So people walk You're almost off fifty those, fifty on a par three. <laughs> people walk off a, a long par five with a sense of achievement if they've had a good score because. They, they were presented with several chances to stuff it up, and they didn't. And they didn't. Never. It doesn't matter how uninteresting the shots were. The fact that they were given three chances to stuff it up and they succeeded three times in a row. In a row. It's that gambler mindset that you have yeah. as a golfer that doesn't matter what's come before, I'm going to have another go. Like, if you, if you double up three times in a row and you, and you hit the jackpot, then yeah. you, you walked off with some satisfaction. Yeah. So there's this weird, perverse attraction yeah, yeah. that, Amateur golfers have to long par fives. I we'll think. talk about challenge and its role and all that sort of stuff shortly. This, I'm going to put this one to you, Harley. I've had correspondence. Correspondence. Stephen Spears, 
sent me a direct message on Twitter. My direct messages are open if anybody wants to send me a message at Rod underscore Murray. Uh, send me a DM. Not that sort of DM. Please send him a DM. He's so low. Logue never sends me anything. (laughs) Stephen Spears, PGA Pro from Turnbury, Scotland, it says here, currently living in Myrtle Beach. Hey, Rod, I love your State of the Game podcast. That's it. Doesn't he love No, that's not true. He loves the State of the Game podcast, which is... Which is smart. Shameless. Shackleford and Clayton are fantastic. I just press record, truly. Uh, I was wondering if you could discuss what makes a good three-shot par five. Most of them are boring with players just trying to get as close to the green as possible. Can you think of any really interesting par five laps? I told him I'd put this to Clayton, who we're hoping to have on the show next week. But, Harley, you're a golf course architect. The notion of three-shot par fives. I've heard Clayton talk about this before and agree essentially with what Adrian's saying there. In terms of actual interest... The majority of par fives really fail at the second shot, don't they? There's invariably, there's not a lot to them. So what's how do we make a good three-shot par five? Well, I think the, um, the other thing too is I think with club golfers versus the better players, that's where you, you get the um, the real um, difference in, in playing ability and length. You know, that, you know if... if Medium par fives, the young guns are going at two shots, you know, and, and, uh, you know and, and, and even some of the long, what we considered once long par fives, they're going at the things with driver and, you know, nine iron, this sort of stuff. So, McElroy hit driver seven iron on the 10th of the Yeah, dark, whereas yeah. your club golfers still, you know, driver three wood, five iron, that sort of thing. So, you've, how you make them interesting for, you know, for the, for the better player versus the average club golfer, you've got, this is where the distances really just really come into, you know, whereas your par four, your long fours or your fours don't sort of show this up like a five does, I guess, you know, that uh, where people are getting to. So a lot of those second shots on the on the long club par fives, you know, they they are tend to be, if depending on how, how they've been designed, if they've been designed for the longer hitter, you know, how do you, this, this, I guess it, with the par fives, how do you design a par five for this great range of hitting length? And I think that's where... Is it possible? Well, that's the issue. And this is where I think they sort of you know, they don't service the interests and the needs of, of your regular club golfer if, you, if you're designing it for sort of at, at the mind for sort of championship play. So, so I guess a lot of these second shots might be just to be, I guess, um, this, this is where you're going with it, Adrian, where you're just hitting a second shot just to the middle of the fairway. Just moving it forward. Moving it moving forward. Moving forward somewhere. You're up, you're up, you're just getting it up there. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not much has been asked for you in terms of... Nothing at stake. Where, except, where, you know, where to go, bit. you know. So, you, you, you know, you're just hitting up to the, hitting it up the middle, basically. Uh, as opposed, again, you know, maybe as, as architects, we need to be thinking about more about that's the area where we're going to make width, um, and angles more interesting for the the shots in for that that third shot. So really, it's really setting up for that third shot. And really, how do we challenge this big difference in hitting length between your club, club golfer and your and your low markers for for that setting up of that third shot in, or, or if it is the second shot for your for your better player. So I think it is just getting a width and is it and and hazard interest in that area that all of a sudden is going to make these these holes uh, so much better. Yeah. Uh, not every course can be this, obviously, but the 14th at the old course mm-hmm. is, you know, you stand on the tee there and you've got maybe the best par five in the world stretched out in front of you. Sure. Then it doesn't matter where you drive it. You've still probably got one of the best par fours in the world left uh-huh. from that point on. Yeah. The, the second shot is so interesting there. And uh, and then when wherever you end up after two shots is still one of the most Great interesting par threes, par threes yeah. that you're ever <laughs> going right. to face in the world. Yeah. It, it's just an endlessly fascinating course, and the 
the variation between those three shots is staggering as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, twenty groups of golfers can go through there, and none of no two golfers could take the same line on all three shots. Yeah. Yeah, it's a rare beast, isn't it? That does actually tick the boxes for all because the the second shot's a really interesting drivable par four for the pros. Yeah, yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's right, right. exactly. Correct. And it's just an interesting par four for you and I. Absolutely, so um, it ticks every box. So that's really interesting. Well, thank you for that, Stephen. I hope that's how you, I will ask Clates the same question perhaps next week, but uh, I think you've uh, you've covered that well, Harley. I was thinking when you were talking about that whole idea of challenge, Adrian. Uh, I know I've written about this in the past. Frank Thomas used to be the senior technical director of the USGA way, way, way many moons ago. I remember I interviewed him. And he was talking about, at, at its core, why people are interested in golf. Like all pursuits, there's no actual point to it. It's just a thing to do with time that keeps you interested. And, and he said that it's not that much different to when you're sitting in your office and you're sort of daydreaming about your work or whatever it might be, and there's a waste paper basket in the corner and you're trying to throw bits of screwed up paper into it. That's a sort of a challenge. He said, so if you think about golf in this way, if you just hold your hand over the waste paper basket and drop the paper, that's interesting. Well, it's not even interesting the first time. There's nothing interesting about that. If you move back in one foot increments, trying to throw the paper into the bin, there'll be a sweet spot where it's both doable but difficult. He said, and that will keep you entertained for a lifetime, that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. If you go back the extra foot that makes it impossible – it's as uninteresting as when you just hold the the paper over the basket. And that's really the job of the architect, isn't it, Harley? Yes. Is to find that sweet spot, but for everybody from LeBron James, who's going to hit it <laughs> that's <laughs> multiple right. times from way back there, to my niece, who can barely throw at all. So you can see the conundrum for architects there. But that notion is a really interesting – I thought it was a really interesting and it made a lot of sense to me when he yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Um, and I think par fives are the ones that really show this up. You know, that's the issue, you know, you know, threes and fours, you know, it's not an issue, but it really is a, is the par fives where this disparity between the, you know, the, the pros and the regular golf club golfer is really brought to four. And so that's where that is the difficult part of, of making these, these holes interesting. But I love that uh, race paper basket yeah, it's, in the paper. That's, fan, that's like brilliant. The start of a Raymond Chandler novel. My <laughs> <laughs> favourite Raymond Chandler line. Uh, I used my knee on his face. It hurt my knee. I didn't say how his face felt. <laughs> uh, some absolute, absolute genius yeah. in there. I suppose – sorry, darling. No, you're right. No, I was just thinking, you know, it's a bit like when you – teach a child to play golf I mean one of the things is you start near the hole and you, you start putting and eventually you work your way back away from from the hole uh, and it just maybe think about that of teaching a child at what point does a does a child gain the interest in the game and then and then I'll be keep going you went took them back to the tee well they're, they're going to lose the interest but if you start at the green and work back it's the same analogy as the waste paper bin yeah the other Raymond Chandler quote. <laughs> We've completely gone off the cliff here. Mostly I just kill time and it dies hard. <laughs> I had another great line of it. Uh, I'm the, what is it? I'm an occasional – I've got it here actually. I'm an occasional drinker, the kind of guy who goes out for a beer and wakes up in Singapore with a full beard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic stuff. Uh, back to kind of where we started. So how does this all plug into golf and its place in society then, Adrian? It's as stupid a pursuit as any other, be it museums, it art, running, cycling. They're all as yep. pointless as each Random. other. Ultimately, just a pastime. What'd you say? Yeah, the snake eating its tail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eventually, 
sort of So this whole notion of, and it started with this discussion with your notion about the ethics of building a new course versus the, the ethics of just fixing what you already have. This really touches on golf's place in more broader society. We know about Moore Park. We know about Vic Park in Brisbane being closed down. We know the pressures that are on golf, the space that it takes up. Uh, how do we maintain it? We obviously think golf has a, a role to play. How do we ensure that that remains the case? And how do we bring those who don't agree with us, like Clover Moore, around to understanding? I like how you steered, steered it all this the way your, back into this. Is this is now at your feet. <laughs> what you say next will dictate your standing in the game for the rest of your life. Well, it is interesting. Like Golf does take up some amazing pieces of land, and that's partly why this comes to mind. There will be people in Tasmania complaining already that that land where Seven Mile Beach is to be built should be for people to walk. And there are walking tracks through there, actually. It does look like a nice place to walk. It does look like a lovely place to walk, mm. with a golf club. That's right. <laughs> but that's just me. Yeah. Um, and there's like, there's so many examples of this. You've also got that arm end uh, development in Hobart, which is an amazing peninsula that sort of juts out into the Derwent River. But just up the the river from there, there's Claremont Golf Club, which we're looking at, which is also an amazing peninsula jutting out into the Derwent River, but pretty average-looking golf course. Apologies to the members at Claremont. I haven't played it, but it looked kind of average uh, it looks like it could be a lot better um and in sydney here and apologies to international we're talking about a lot of <laughs> it's going to be nowhere left for you to talk- play by the end of this we're episode. talking about a lot of local golf courses that people might not have heard of or seen but there's a golf course here in sydney called long reef which is on the most spectacular peninsula you can possibly imagine and it's it's in the middle of sydney like it's not in the middle of the city it's about 30 minute drive from the city center but it's in a very heavily populated area on the northern beaches of Sydney. But there's, it's this amazing peninsula that juts out into the into the Pacific Ocean, like Old Head. Yeah, it's a real but headland, isn't it? It's, it's, really... it's like Old Head in Ireland, but it's in it's in a major international city, and uh, it's about a hundred hectares. Uh, sorry, about a hundred acres. Um, that was about thirty five hectares or something. I have no idea. So big enough for a decent golf course and you drive past it on this very busy road and you look out at this expanse of green there with beautiful cliff tops and a beach on one side and a beach on both sides actually Mm. and you think to yourself imagine if that was a golf course well it is a golf course and uh if it was the sort of place that was just all parkland and and somebody had finangled it to build a golf course there it would be worldwide news yeah Pe- people around the world beach. would be super excited by this the prospect of a golf course on this amazing headland and uh we, but the fact is we do have a golf course there and it's it's just completely overlooked and it could be a lot better architecturally um but it's probably you know it's like every club it struggles with budget and ambition probably and this gets this point i was making about clubs get the architect that they deserve you're not consulting there are you no i'm not Um, (laughs) but of course it's also public course isn't it basically it's a public public course course a a club bolted onto the side of the public course to your point rod it shares that area with a lot of different people walking dogs and um like tory pines they do that crazy thing where they oh. jump off the cliff with a parachute yeah. and hang gliders hang gliders off the no the the one where they've got a parachute and somehow paragliders i think paragliding, paragliding. yeah it yep. lifts them up or something it just it's makes no sense it's crazy um jumping off a 
Well, jumping off a cliff. You just end the sentence there. <laughs> just don't do it. It's just not a smart thing to do. But there's those people everywhere. Um, but like there's yeah, dog walkers and stuff. It's actually a very accessible piece of land. Um, and I, I don't hear too much uh, scuttlebutt about it being a problem um, in the same way that more park is there's a lot of walking paths all around it and everything which is great so um you know that's a good example of golf not really appreciating a venue that it already has and maybe potentially you know if you could find resources to put into that you could have that world famous golf course there but instead we've got you know very good sydney public golf but you know it could be could be something amazing yeah, what I love about that whole area. I mean, you, you, you know, you've got a golf course out in this amazing peninsula. You've got these public walking tracks around the cliff top, from you know south and around the whole point and around to the, you know the beach to the north. Um, I think it's an example of you know it, everything's very accessible. And I think probably after hours, people just walk their dogs across the golf course as You'd well and so. things like that. So, so I think it is you know it's a classic example of a, a great situation where golf cohabitates this piece of land with a whole lot of other uses and you know the beaches of course you know long reef beach is a very famous beach for surfing and windsurfing and 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 there's probably fishing fishing off the cliff you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things going on there and golf sort of sits in comfortably doesn't it on this most amazing piece of land it sits there really comfortably with everything else going on and i think there's a I sense there's a bit of a respect of the golf course in the local community. I think there's it's been there for a long, long time. The people who live there, um, live at that northern beaches of Sydney, you know, they've got an amazing lifestyle of, you know, going for a swim before going to work or a surf and people probably have, you know, knock little nine holes after work when they come home. So there's... Well, it's not fenced off, is it, Harlan? No, it's not. No, it's, it's not, not fenced a, off at all. You're not excluded no. from long... Correct. And we see this as a real problem with golf, and we've talked about it before, yeah. but this notion yeah. where not only does golf not share, it goes out of its way to exclude. This is what golf has to bring to this conversation for its own good yeah. and understanding that that is no longer going to be, certainly for public golf, it's no longer going to cut it, and we need to find ways That's uh, right. to sort of share. Yeah. Just on the the walking path next to Longreef there, did we see a guy in a wheelchair come barreling down that hill when <laughs> we, we were there? We did. Last year, we, this the craziest thing I've ever seen. This guy was like, what going are you doing? very fast. And then he, Steep concrete yeah. path with turns in it. And he's in one of those. He disappeared like a, behind a hill and we yeah, just like, spent well, the rest of the day wondering how that went. Whatever happened <laughs> that there, that was up. one of the craziest yeah. things I've ever seen. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was true. I, I just remembered while you were talking about it. That's right. We saw that. <laughs> it was going yeah, oh, he was unexpectedly really going. fast. Do they have brakes? Like, <laughs> no, I, don't I don't think they've got things that are designed to slow you down. He you didn't have his down. arms flailing around. No, like no, he looked to be enjoying like an emergency. It. He, was, it was, he seemed yeah. to be, uh, to be uh, in charge of the whole thing. On that notion of, of sharing, I know, and this is a theme that comes up constantly on yeah. this show, and I think it's one that will yeah. keep coming up constantly. Does it? And I imagine it sort of stimulates your thinking. Have you had many more thoughts about it? the last time you here? We spoke about that. This culture yeah. of how we include more people in golf, and I think Moore Park's probably the prime example. You've got people there saying you're using a lot of space for just you. And that's probably not an unreasonable position to hold. If it wasn't golf, if it was something else, we'd probably say, well, yeah, why are just those people getting access? Yeah. No, I think the whole Moore Park thing's brought out a whole lot of interest. I mean, it's, it's been a great, interesting thing to sort of watch and involve. And, you know, the golf's busy, and, and, and I think Clover Moore read the, read the game wrong. I think she got a few, you know, bit of publicity out of it. But, but the, you know, getting back to this, this thing, I think it does show that, and I think the golf club and the golf facility is sort of prepared in their thinking that they and acknowledge that they need to allow people 
who are non-golfers or allow non-golf activity to, to happen at certain, you know, if it's hours of the day or, or parts of the week, that there's this facility that's there seven days a week to, and that there's certain times of the week when perhaps people can then use it in not, you know, if it's walking the dog or taking the kids. So there's, there's a, there are opportunities and I think too, I think it's identified that the, the issue of this permeability of the, of the golf course from, you know, all this massive apartment development across the other side of the road um, and, you know, the shortfallings of, of it not providing green space. But, you know, at the same time, good urban design should allow this sort of permeability of people to cross the road and get through the golf course to the greater part of the Centennial Parklands, which, you know, if the golf course there is 42 hectares, I think the parklands are 260 no, hectares. So, so I think it's it's sort of these – but mind you, there's still these other streets that cross through the golf course that there's an upgrade to a, a, a pedestrian cycle path there. So I think it's just um, – yeah, I think the fence is coming down and, and just seeing how we can sort of open up these places a bit – um, and also, too, if you look at Moore Park, and this is me wearing my golf vegetation landscape architect hat, is the golf course there, you know, has enormous potential to be some great bit of, um, you know, urban wildlife habitat and biodiversity, and it currently isn't. And of more of the Centennial Parklands, the golf course is the place where they could do some amazing things like that. Um, Centennial Park itself is doing a bit of that, but you know the golf course is another area where they could do it, and because uh, there is room to do it, and and yet there hasn't been management hasn't really looked at doing that. So I've called it shoring up the assets and where golf courses, if they can bring the fences down, but also be looking to improving the local biodiversity of that particular area, um, the golf course itself can also be a bit of a piece where people can learn a bit about the local flora and fauna as they play the game in that local environment which as our cities become denser and denser with population and and become more and more urbanized these these little patches of golf can be these little remnants of of perhaps um, pre-settlement uh, vegetation in part so anyway something to think about permeability is a great word it's a fantastic ability hmm. yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, that's, that in the that's, show notes somehow. Yeah. <laughs> ability. I'll have to think about that. If you see it in the show notes, you'll know I've succeeded. Yeah, yeah. Did. So, yeah, let's get gets people through these courses. It feels to me what you've outlined there, Harley, is the notion of trying to turn what is perceived as a negative into an actual positive. Because you're right, other sporting fields, which nobody seems to have any issue with the amount of space that football grounds and whatnot take up because there's lots of little ones as opposed to one big one, don't and I would, would imagine cannot provide anything in the way of habitat for flora and fauna golf courses really can with planning and involvement yeah they're the last bits of 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 parkland where they can actually do this and do this in a way and do it in a real meaningful way i think you know average parkland tends to be you know the tractor you know mounted slasher that goes around and cuts the big expanse of grass and in, in around trees and things whereas a golf course we can actually um bring a whole other layers of vegetation into these places as which once would have existed and and that can co coexist with a game of golf and it can coexist with people walking their dogs um, taking the kids for a walk at you know certain hours of the day when the golf course is closed for business and so yeah that's the opportunity and obviously getting back to long reef it it doesn't have a fence why doesn't it not have a fence whereas other public golf courses need a fence and i think it, as i said it sits comfortably within the local environs and and maybe it's sort of kind of respected as a space that it's always been there and and that's where people go and play golf and and certain times of day I can cut across with my dog or my bike or whatever but there's there's a respect of that golf course to the point that they don't 
maybe they do, maybe they don't, but, you know, we don't have the hoon element, you know, doing donuts on the putting greens and digging things up because people respect it, whereas other places they feel they've got to shut it all off. So, and we ask the question, you know, I don't have the answer, but, you know, why? But, uh, and, but that's the provoking thought that maybe we don't need these fences. Maybe they're just there out of sort of habit and maybe there's ways of bringing the barriers you, you down. Don't get it in, you don't get it in Scotland, do you, where it's just no. accepted. No. Courses don't have fences around yeah, yeah. them and they're an accepted part of the community for everybody, even those yeah. who don't play golf, yeah. which is the yeah. point that you're touching. Yeah. You, might, you might want to include in the show notes the article I sent you yesterday, Rod, uh, uh, no, I don't think I do. It <laughs> was the the bit that yeah, and I don't, and I don't want you sharing it with the listeners. You, no, no, you can gonna, put it on your own Twitter. I'm going to read out. Call for improved signage around golf courses as a man has surgery on his testicle after being hit by a golf ball. Is <laughs> really getting the community on board there? Like, good on you. Well done. Uh, that standing invitation, Clover Moore, if you're listening and if you do listen to the show and you know Clover, forward it to her. The standing invitation to come on and talk about some of this stuff is there. Uh, there's no doubt she's upset a lot of people in golf, and I think all of us understand why, but the whole issue it won't move forward without some sort of discussion happening between parties who disagree about stuff, and I feel like we're a sensible forum where that might happen. So the standing invitation is there, Clover Moore. I haven't just brought it down with the testicle reference. You haven't elevated it, that's but, for sure. But I, I think I think Clover's done a golf a bit of a service there, to be honest, because golf's had to golf, you know, Moorpark Golf Course, the Golf Club, you know, Golf New South Wales, Golf Australia, Society of Golf Course Architects, other golfing industry people have come out and had to, they've had to think about this thing that she's talked about and and sort of articulate and actually even do some you know good research into you know what more park golf course is and how important it is and as a business so in a way she's done golf a favor because golf's had to align itself on more park and really think about it and you know you, we could say the the battle was won but i'm not sure if oh, the I don't war think that's you know, the case you know you golf, think it's golf, golf needs to be challenged and no not the war i'm saying the battle that that battle's oh, the been battle won, but not won. the war yeah. right yeah, so yeah, so, so i think i think um, it was good to see the support that Moorpark golf course got um, in that process and i think as a club the club to the side which i was had a lot of conversations with you know they've had to look at um, things from their own perspective and present um, what they're doing and to present the game of golf and you know the, the place is obviously means a lot of things to a lot of people uh, and and uh, and a lot of golfing people who who you know Clover's saying we just go down the road there's plenty of other 18 hole golf courses well there aren't uh, plenty of other public public 18 hole golf courses you know that close to where people live and so it's I a think, lack of understanding about correct the and and you know I think the figures you know Sorry, the counting, but the the, the, <laughs> the you know the, it generates a huge income. Absolutely, that then supports the maintenance and management of the rest of the of the parklands. So, uh, and it's and it's doing. They say something like ninety thousand rounds of golf this year alone. So, people value it from a golf point of view. So I think yeah. So I think I think it's it's provoked a lot of thought and discussion in the golf world. And I think that's <laughs> thank thank you, Clover, for doing that. That's. Self-examination is critical. I guess this is what yep. I keep trying to say. Yep. It's not good enough to just say, I'm a golfer, all golf therefore is good and deserves to be where it is. I don't think that's good enough. You need to actually be certain. I agree with you. I think it's yep. it's made golfers think more about why golf might yep. be important because this isn't going to stop. No, it's not. It's, no. it's not as though more Park's future is going to be secured at some point and then that's that. Nobody will ever question it again. They will. Uh, and yep. golf needs to be able to keep answering those questions. Who knows? The time might come when you can no longer make the case. For golf, if they keep allowing the 
sort of building they've allowed there without any addition of green space along with the addition of residents, yeah. there is going to come a time when <laughs> there won't be enough green space. But those things are about plenty. But that self-examination is absolutely critical. And I critical. agree with you. I think it's yeah. been a real positive yeah. Yeah. for golf to have to really think about it. And all. I think we all know it innately, but you've got to organise your thoughts uh, when challenged. That lack of understanding on the part of Clive Moore is really disappointing because it's a politician's jobs to have some sort of understanding. If you were to put it in terms that might be more familiar to her, it's like suggesting, well, there's another art gallery down the road. Just go there because mm-hmm. all art galleries are the same and all art that hangs in them is exactly the same. That- mm, that's a great example. I, I was thinking for golfers to understand what non-golfers feel about golf, try and put it in those terms to yourself. Like I, I think to myself, I don't care about 10-pin bowling. No. But imagine if there was like there, there'd be what, 80 golf courses in metropolitan Sydney. I've no idea. That's like yeah, more actually. I think there's more. Like, uh, there's over 50 public golf courses in Metropolitan Sydney, right. and I think over maybe 60 something. or something private. So we're talking yeah. 120 right. golf courses. So imagine if there were 120 10 pin bowling places in Sydney. I'd be thinking to myself, Sydney's way overserved for 10 pin bowling, and turn that would be a lot of 10 pin bowling. But also, 10 pin bowling only takes up like one building's worth of space. Golf courses take up like. 50 10-pin bowling buildings <laughs> or more, I don't know. So it does feel like to non-golfers that golf is just colossally overserved. Um, when, you know, when you're in it, you realise that that's not necessarily the case. You just, you know, you're selling tee times, which is just this little piece of grass on the first tee, but then, you know, it takes a whole golf course to complete a round of golf. But um, that, that's, I think, put it in those terms as a golfer and you realise what non-golfers see. They, they see... What, what are we up to? About a thousand ten pin bowling places, <laughs> two thousand ten pin bowling places in one city. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's what they see. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I think it's about enough. Found me. Got any closing thoughts? Uh, no, not really. I haven't. You got a new computer, which you're happy about, so that's nice. I'm very happy with this computer. You've been yeah. on it the whole time. You've barely been with us. Been referencing you, notes. You've dropped into the conversation I've got, occasionally. I've got notes. <laughs> I'm not notes. as classy as he's Harley with his pen and paper. Fancy. Fountain pen. Where did you get that fountain pen? He's got his fountain pen that he extracted out of the inner pocket of his three piece suit. Of my three piece suit. Three piece suit. Uh, Good to have you along today, Logue. Thank you for that, mate. Harley, good to have you along. And we are looking forward to Harley's going to become a fairly regular sort of a a visitor with us here. We're going to be a bit more organised here on Good Good. So Harley's one of those who will join us fairly regularly. I like that. I like it partly because you get to come into the studio and that's the best way to do these. Yeah, I love coming to the studio, Rod. The studio is fantastic. What a place to be. It is. So wonderful. So, yes, great to talk today. I'm looking forward to chatting some more in the future. And that's it for Episode 61, the Good Good Golf Podcast. We'll be back next week with Episode 62, funnily enough. And we look forward to your company then.